Welcome to the Intern Whisperer. The show is all about the future of work and innovation. Today's Intern Whisperer tip of the week is Dr. Gary Chapman. He wrote this great book called The Five Languages of Appreciation in the Workplace. And each week I've been sharing a tip. We are on tip number three and that people like to receive gifts. That's one of the ways that they know they are appreciated. So remember, it isn't about the amount that you spend. It is just the fact that you remember to get a gift. And sometimes that can be a sticker. Sometimes it can be a cool pin. It might be a really cool beanie hat. I don't know. Anyway, so we are going to be adding, um, introducing our guest. It is Kevin Miller, who is the Senior VP of Creative and Medical Science with Invivo, a red nucleus company. So we're going to learn more about that. And Matt, our show is all about, kick us off. So today, our show is all about education, innovation, and the future of industries and jobs. Even or the odd questions? I have the even ones. All right. So go ahead, Kevin. Tell us all about yourself. Five words only. This is a trick. So uh, I think the first word that I use to describe myself is creative. I really love coming up with new ideas, uh, looking at new approaches, or, or brainstorming with my team. Uh, the second word I would use would be curious. Uh, I'm inquisitive. I love looking into new technologies or new approaches. Uh, what's coming? What's new? Uh, I'm passionate. I love what I do. I give 100% in everything that uh, I work on. Uh, I've often been told that when I get passionate or excited about things, I speak too quickly. So if I start getting excited here, feel free to tell me to slow down a little bit. Uh, I'm empathetic. Uh, I often know that, you know, having had a career that spans over 20 years, people come from all different walks of life, all different experiences. And I think it's really important to um, be empathetic and be able to put yourself in their shoes. Um, you often will get really good results when you can bring people in who offer perspectives that are different than your own. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the last one is around integrity. I hold myself to a really high standard morally, and I expect that from the team members that I work with. And I think that honesty and openness is a really important value to, uh, to be able to hold as well. Yeah. Empathy. I'm going to target that one out of all of the words that you mentioned. I think that's so important because you're picking up on the cues of others and it's not all about you. It's remembering, oh yeah, it's about these other, other people that I work with. And whether it's body language or if it's the way that something is said, sometimes it's just, you know, you don't know what's going on with somebody. So being empathetic, I think that is a really good skill for every employer to have. I agree with you. And I think as we get older, sometimes curiosity is one of those skills that tends to fall to the wayside. And uh, it's an important aspect, I think, of keeping yourself on your toes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You've got young kids, right? Uh, not too young anymore. I have a 17-year-old and a 12-year-old. So um, they're a little bit older, but uh, they keep me on my toes. Yeah, they do. The 12-year-old still probably plays with some things, maybe not the 17-year-old. But I think Legos are a really fun toy to play with because it does make you think out of the box. So, oh, you lose the instructions. Now can you make that Millennial Falcon? I don't know. It's a little bit harder and you have to be super creative. So uh, share us a little bit about yourself, maybe like your education, your background, how you got involved in the industry you're in. Uh, you know, growing up, um, I had always had a passion for the sciences. You know, when I was younger, I wanted to be a doctor. As I got older, I actually decided that I wanted to try and apply to get into dentistry school. Um, but in the background, I always had this love for art. And it was interesting because as you're growing up, I think people often try to package you into either a left-brained or a right-brained person. You know, you're either analytical, you can do maths and sciences, and that's the stream you're going to go with, or you are using the other side of your brain and you're doing creative work and artistic work. And I always struggled with that because I think I was wired with about the same level of prominence on both. Um, so although I never had any formal art training, I did decide to do an undergraduate degree in biochemistry uh, with a minor in psych psychology at McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada. And when I finished that program, uh, I heard about a master's program, and it's one of only four that exists in North America. Uh, and it's very, very specific to people that have um, the ability to do work that is both on the scientific side and on the artistic side. It's a program called Biomedical Communications and through the University of Toronto, it's offered through the Faculty of Medicine. And it's really that beautiful marriage of taking complex scientific uh, knowledge and scientific understanding and pairing it with 
visualization. So you can create these stories that help to take things that are otherwise really complicated and making them more simple for people to understand. So it was the first time in life that I felt like I was actually with my people. These are the kinds of people that uh, were wired the same way. Uh, and they, we, you know, we worked really well on all these programs together. And it, and it also, um, you know, gave you a really good foundation around what kind of skills are important uh, to be able to take into the workforce. Uh, it's actually offered, like I said, through Faculty of Medicine. So uh, we would do the same program as the medical students. We were doing the anatomy and the physiology, the histology and the pathology. But while the medical students went off and they did their curriculum with, um, uh, by working with patients and learning in the hospital environment, we were actually learning things like uh, medical writing and animation and uh, pen and ink illustration. So it was really those practical art skills that could kind of marry with it. Um, it was also during that time period, I, I had an opportunity to take on some internships. And this really was what uh, reinforced my understanding that this is the career path I wanted to take. I had an opportunity to move down to Atlanta and do two internships at a pharmaceutical manufacturing company where I was working in their sterilization business. And I love the scientific aspect of it. But again, coming back to the fact that uh, as a visual storyteller, I knew that coming out of this, I wanted to try and find a career that would ultimately reward both halves of my brain. Um, and that's sort of where I landed in this industry that we call medical communications. Uh, primarily the goal of medical communications is to work with pharmaceutical companies, uh, uh, medical device companies, institutions and organizations to help tell their story. And it can be anything from explaining how a drug works. It could be around an implant procedure or a process like manufacturing, or even what is it that leads to diseases. Uh, and the outputs of those things are everything from animations and videos. Uh, it can be medical games or interactive tools, conference installations, um, simulations like augmented or virtual reality, uh, learning and training and development, uh, data visualizations and you know in some cases the outputs are even more simple we're doing powerpoints or we're doing research papers mm. that sort of summarizes the the industry that i that i now operated of my, my background that got me there so you would be involved with things like uh promotional videos to show how like um like prosthetics can benefit people in in different industries and things like that mm -hmm. Yeah, um, we've worked with some prosthetic companies where we've actually shown um, how to properly fit a prosthetic for people that have recently lost a limb. Um, we work with medical device companies to show how physicians or who are surgeons would ultimately implant that device. And we've worked with patients to learn about how to properly take their medication and what to expect when they're on their medication. It's actually, you know, although it's a very much a niche field, there's so many challenges within this space that need to be solved. So you said something while you were sharing that um, example, a number of examples. And so something came into my mind. It's not on my list here, but I'm pretty sure you can answer it. Is I know that many times when I go to a pharmacist or a doctor's office, they'll say, hey, tell us all of the medications that you're taking. And I'm wondering, does your um, services, does it include like, oh, well, you're taking these three medications. Now there's going to be a conflict with this one. And then the person that's learning through your platform, they can go, oops, this was bad. We just killed our patient. Or, oops, we just got this, you know, horrible rash all over. Um, can you even replicate those? Because I think that's a lot of knowledge for somebody to know as to these medications will all work together, these don't. And that would probably help reduce, I would think, some potential lawsuits in hospitals if people could replicate that kind of knowledge. Yeah, we don't tend to target the patients for that kind of stuff. What we often do is we'll um, create tools that are educational for physicians. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of instances, those tools talk about, you know, um, what are some of the things they need to be aware of when they are prescribing or using this, these drugs or this class of drugs? And what are the types of other, what are the appropriate questions that they should be asking their patients um, around other medications they're taking so that they make sure they do get that information and they don't put people on medications that would ultimately interact poorly. Um, but we don't develop patient tools for that kind of stuff. We tend to stay, when it comes to anything that requires um, medical decisions, we tend to um, provide physicians with information that allow them to still make those ultimate decisions. I think it's important that the physician still stays at the center of all that decision-making. Yeah. Many times going to a uh, pharmacist, 
or a physician's assistant, I am so impressed with the amount of knowledge they have. Yes, you can take this medication with this because I take Allegra 24-7. You know, it's one of those for allergies. And Mm -hmm. I said, well, what else can I use? Because it's 24 hours. But you know what? It starts, you know, dying on me around 8 o'clock in the evening because I take it at 8 o'clock. I can't double up. So what can I do? And I like being able to ask the pharmacist or, or in this case, the doctor's office. And to me, that's like so much knowledge. I cannot imagine having that responsibility. Um, I'm sure doctors have to do that. You know, I know nurses do along with pharmacists. But that's just so much knowledge. I'm amazed at how brilliant they are. It's just a comment. It's not really like a question, but it's I thought, ooh, if there was a game that somebody could, you know, help them know, yeah, these three medications, good, this one, bad. And, you know, kind of a quiz, a quiz thing. Yeah, we haven't done anything specific for that, but I'll take that back as potentially a new idea to uh, to investigate. Yeah. One of the big things that we try and focus on is, and it goes back to that ability for people to remember that information is, how do you make the information that you're trying to tell to that audience really sticky? How do you make it so that it's memorable, right. that they feel like they're engaged with it? And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we often have to solve is how do, how do we make sure that once this interaction with whatever program we've had or the animation or whatever it was, once it's all finished, that they actually have learned something and that that will somehow impact the decisions or the things that they go on afterwards mm-hmm. to do. So there's lots of different ways to be able to do that. And you know, I think I talked about that a little bit in the medical gaming con- conference that we were at previously. You know, there's ways of being able to improve engagements by making things more interactive or um, giving people badges or rewards. Um, there's that opportunity to um, present information in ways that um, is more bite-sized chunks. So people can have these like micro learning moments as opposed to like, you know, dumping an entire textbook of content at exactly. them all at once. Exactly. And so we try and, you know, I think as being in the field for so long, you learn all these little tips and tricks around best practices that help ensure that when you do create that material, that the people that are ultimately consuming it will respond more positively to it because you've ultimately um, taken your learnings from those last number of years of doing that and you're putting them in play so that um, people actually really do uh, walk away with those messages and understand that material. I'm just still adding on to this because I sit here and I go, wow, that would be so complex because some medications, they'll either you know close them down or they'll morph into a different one or maybe the um, whatever the, the <sighs> levels, I don't know what to call it, but the amounts of ingredients will vary. So Keeping up with that, I can see that there would be a lot of compliance that has to be maintained in that medical field to make something uh, that specific so that people would know, oh, yes, this is good, this works, this works, this works, this not so much. Anyway, I think we've actually answered one of the questions because this was really my other question was, what challenges do you experience when trying to communicate with your target audience? Because this is all science-based. And when I looked at your website, I was going, ooh, I love the hero pages. Super simple language. I'm going, five-year-old, I can understand it. It's easy. Uh, Because I think when it speaks to the common person, you're actually, you're not dumbing it down in my opinion, you're making it so that it's accessible to any level of education, people that speak multiple languages, just different interpretations. And when I believe when something is broken down into simple, again, simple language, it's making sure we're all on the same page, as many people as possible. So we'll say it's like 90% of us are all on the same page. Mm -hmm. And that's a real talent to make that happen. It's that you and your team that made that messaging so clear because it was really good. We do the, yeah, we do all the medical writing. So, I mean, one of the things that I think is really important, it goes back to that statement of knowing your audience. Um, and I'll give you a specific example. So, you know, shortly before COVID hit, uh, we were approached by an organization out of California that specifically was working with Somali families. And the reason why is because the Somali population in the United States had some of the lowest vaccine rates across all populations. And they were looking to try and create materials that were that would be specific for that community that would help to prevent vaccine hesitancy so that there'd be better uptake and there'd be more understanding. And one of the first things we did for that project is we actually did interviews with 
um, people that were perceived as being um, uh, important within that community, like some of the religious leaders and some of the um, people that were in, um, in different positions within that community that would ultimately share their experiences. And we layered that into the 360 video that um, could be viewed as either a, um, a YouTube website or um, on a uh, VR headset. And by layering in all of those things that were community and culturally based, it meant that there was a higher degree of receptivity because they were seeing something that reflected who they were. And it was speaking in a tone of voice that reflected who they were. Um, and so the end result of that was a program that was specifically designed for that audience. And so when you talk about what are the challenges, I think the key is you really do have to understand who that audience is. And when you make these programs, making sure that it matches that demographic, that population, um, that ethnic group, um, the, the, the level of education these people have, uh, you want to speak to them at a level that resonates with them. Yeah, you know, if, you have, if you create something that's for patients and it's really, really simplified, but you're giving it to a, a, a person who's a specialist in rare diseases, it's they're going to turn it off after a few minutes because you're 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 too simple for them. You need to create mm -hmm. something that's actually going to work with that audience. Yeah, it reminds me of what you were just sharing is how people have interpreted COVID. You know, you'll see it as on the political spectrum, Republican versus Democrat. Okay, yes, we are going to do the shot. No, we are not going to do the shot. And usually Republicans will say, no, it's my right not to do this. And and I'm just saying as a generalization, it's not. This is the way it is between those, those different viewpoints. But today I saw a headline because you also mentioned something else there. There was a pastor, didn't say his name that um, died of COVID because he was going anti-vaccine, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and then he died. And then the other next headline was there's a, uh, a husband and a wife. Uh, they just had a baby. Um, she died, the baby died, and then he died two weeks later, and they left four kids, all That's under all the old. age of like seven. And I just went, oh, my God. So, you know, there's this uh, place of, you know, they were in the right place. They were in the hospital and, you know, it still didn't necessarily work. And here's this pastor that um, he was going, no, don't do it. But there's even people that have had the shot and then they still get it. So your ability to come in and help um, people understand, I guess, risks and make an educated decision for themselves, I think that's probably really what space you're really in right look we're not we, we're not going to change anybody's mind especially I mean, we've done we've done a lot of work on covid we've worked with a number of companies on on stuff we've actually done some pro bono projects as well for covid just to help make sure that the information out there is is accurate um we can't we're not going to change people's mind but what we can do and i think as a community it's our job to do is to make sure that we people have the opportunity to get information that's accurate so they can make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important part about being scientific storytellers. Mm, yeah, scientific storytellers. I like that term. Um, I wanted to ask you about, um, like, what is in vivo and, and how did you get your start into it? Yeah. Uh, so in vivo is a, a specialized digital medical communications company. Uh, we've been around since 1998 and um, I am proud to be one of the founding members. Okay. Uh, so, so go back a minute though. And how did it get its name? And was that the original name and did it more? No. So that's actually, that's actually part of the story. The, okay. the original name uh, when I first joined and I joined a few months after sort of its inception was uh, it was called Bronskill Mediascape. And it was a division within a sports marketing company. And the owner of the sports marketing company, his wife worked in the biotechnology space. And this sports marketing company was developing installations for Major League Baseball and NHL hockey and uh, wrestling that were like experiential designs and conferences and installations and materials for them. And the, the wife was saying, listen, I operate in a field in which this type of work doesn't exist in the healthcare space. You know, do you think that there's people on your team that could ultimately develop things that were specific for the science community? And, you know, and in her searching, she didn't find a lot of companies that were being able to support them like that. And so um, they put together a very small team uh, within, within Bronskill called Mediascape. And there was three of us and I served as the medical illustrator, animator, and compositor, uh, as well as part of the um, medical content side. And we ultimately kind of gave this a go. We were given the mandate to try and see if there was a market for, uh, for building out a medical side. 
a couple of short years later, we rebranded as In Vivo Communications um, and operated as a separate division from Bronskill. Obviously, we had a very different mandate. And the name In Vivo um, actually comes from the Latin word, which means within the body. Mm-hmm. So uh, we thought that was very fitting, considering that most of the stories that we were going to be telling and most of the work we were doing was all related to um, health and the benefit of understanding how people's bodies work and how diseases form and how drugs work and things like that. Was the work that was done on the sports side primarily um, like VR and integrated reality or was it just media in general? Well, we're going back a long time now. Oh, we're going back to the we're going back to 1998, 1999. There really wasn't any VR at that point in time. We're talking about um, you know kiosks at conferences. We're talking about live displays or interactive things like for hockey. It was things like um, setting up a um, a uh, you know shooting on a virtual goal like a, a cutout of a goalie. Things like that. There were there were a lot of like hands on sort of things you might see like a science center that kind right. of stuff that was being done. Uh, it really wasn't until the mid um, 2000s, like 2004, 2008, that we really started to get into some of these next generation technologies that started to take that up a notch where um, on the uh, on the medical side, we were starting to do work at conferences that now included medical games. We were starting to bring some basic simulations into play. And, and really what happened during that time period was technology was advancing, we were continuing to keep our eye on the prize of what was happening in that space and bringing in those technologies, and then trying to find ways to be able to put them into client projects. So, you know, it happened a few years later than um, than, than, our, than the sports marketing side, but they were doing the same thing. They started to do those kinds of projects as well um, in parallel when we were doing them. So when did the VR launch officially because how long have you been with your startup because you know i'm startups girl i'm a startup girl over here and many times people go oh yeah you're gonna get this big exit so did you guys bootstrap it did you take money are you just all sales what did you do so i mean we're i wouldn't call us a startup anymore at this point i mean we're 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 now 20 years so uh we were a startup for a number of years we're a startup um, it was it was all um, uh, you know through blood sweat and tears to be able yeah. to grow the company. We grew we grew the company from a total of three people to um, we're now uh, you know before before uh, a recent acquisition we were almost 120 people, wow. and really it was around that mandate of um, staying um, you know technically unpredictable around you know what's next what's coming what's coming down the pipe being um, curious and bringing new uh, new creative approaches into the mix and uh, you know hiring people that align to the same kind of values that you find in yourself uh, and and building up that and obviously that resonated with our clients they would learn to come to us around new ideas so our clients would say we want to know what's next what's the next big thing you know we've got a conference coming up and we want to have something that is on the show floor that will really take things up so that you know these doctors walk away really having had an amazing experience that's very memorable mm-hmm. so we've always had that as a as part of our um our mandate. I mean, it goes back before AR and VR. When when things like mobile technologies came out in like 2009, 2010, we were one of the first companies to get an Apple developer's license so that we could start building applications on mobile phones or on tablets so that you could create little um, diagnostic aids that would help you to be able to understand what symptoms were associated with what diseases or patients could start tracking their medication and whether they were taking their medication every day and then, you know, gamifying it by adding little badges and rewards in it. So we did those kinds of things early in the space. Um, With respect to augmented and virtual reality, we've been in that space for about 12 years now. We started about 2009, 2010. And, you know, at that time, it was very much in its rudimentary uh, stages. In fact, um, it was back in, I think, 2012, I met Palmer Lucky from Oculus and shared a project we were working on. And he's like, I have to send you one of our headsets. And we worked together and I got a headset so we could try doing um, virtual reality at a time when there really wasn't any consumer ready headsets available yet. That's um, awesome. So that, that idea of being able to get out in front and, and work with technologies before they even came out was has always been something that we've really enjoyed doing. Ooh, it's got to feel like, you know, we're at the party, we got special, you know, toys that we can all try out. That has got to be super exciting. And it's surprising, though, you know, when you're saying it, and it's just 10 years, I'm sitting here thinking it's 10 years, it seems like it's been so much longer. And that's when I'm sitting here thinking like, so what is the next thing? And, and I love 
having these discussions like what we'll do in the second half of the show where it's the future of what is that going to look like you know because is it going to be implanted in our eyes but i'll i'll hold that until we get to the next half of the show anyway we're back over here so your company got acquired what is it that's right how yes. is it different you you said that you've got a lot more people now yeah. So, I mean, we went from a team of about 120 people to over 400 people now. And I think one of the biggest advantages of is we've joined a large organization that's very well established in areas that we didn't have expertise. So then we've got this pool of internal resources and specifically with the Red Nucleus um, part of the family, it's this idea that we now have access to learning and training expertise that we would have never had before. I mean, that's really what they're known for. Um, we have access and um, offices all over the world. So it's meant that from a client standpoint, we can try and secure and work with clients that are in places that would have been otherwise very hard to support because they said, you know, you don't have a presence in Europe. Okay, well, now we do. So now we can take on that work um, by pairing up with colleagues that are in our London office that we can, uh, you know, we can collaborate on projects together. And, uh, you know, we've shared clients with them and they've shared clients with us. And so it gives us an opportunity to work on some really exciting work. Oh, and I think that it's been a valuable, um, a valuable partnership. So where is Red Nucleus? Is it in the U.S.? Is it in Canada? Yeah. Is it somewhere else? Yeah, it's based in the uh, in, in Pennsylvania. It's in the Philadelphia area. Okay, so where are you? I'm in Toronto, Canada. Oh yeah, that's right. You said that. Well, I know we had that as another conversation, but yes. um, yeah. So that's interesting. Does is the company? Outside of Canada, outside of North America, is Red Nucleus like global in it other is, locations? Yeah. Yes, we have um, offices in London and uh, in Stockholm, in uh, India, in Japan, and in Australia. Mm -hmm. Wow, that sounds like a really sizable company. Okay, so who's the most influential person in your life and why? That's an easy one. That would be my wife. And it is because she is by far the smartest person I know. Um, she's actually a specialist doctor who treats rare hematological diseases, which are, are blood diseases. Mm -hmm. um, she's also a researcher and she's a professor at the University of Toronto. And um, you know, we make a great team. Um, every decision that we make is shared and she helps me to recalibrate and helps me to put things in perspective. And I would argue that I do the same for her. So I think that, um, you know, it's always nice to have that person in your corner who helps to give you perspective on things. And, um, uh, you know, for that reason, I think that uh, she fills that role very well. Okay, so we need to give her a shout out. What's her name? Her name's Katerina Kvensky. Okay, so Katerina, you just got a little shout out. That's awesome. You guys are like the dynamic duo. Yeah, the they're the power couple. Seriously, yeah. Yeah. They're definitely doing that thing there. Because I think that what you bring to the table, obviously, is like just the everyday perspective. Um, because she can see it from a totally different place, you know, having gone through medical school and working with patients. That's very, very from the clinical view. But, you know, the marketing of something, it's, you know, not everybody's wired that way. Yeah, it's interesting because our worlds overlap in a number of instances. And there's been conferences where she's attending as a physician and I'm attending because I'm supporting our clients at booths that are there mm. and uh, opportunities where I'm working on uh, with clients that um, are based on products that she might be using or research that she's actually involved with. So it, it's pretty interesting just to have those two worlds married sometimes. Oh, yeah. Do you think that your kids, one of your kids is going to choose a path or, or that they're going to follow either her or you? Have your, well, the 17-year-old, does he have any vision as to where he wants to go? Uh, it's a very different path, for, I think, for him. He is, you know, he's into the he's into the sciences. He's doing really well that way. But um, he's grown up in a very different world than the one I grew up in, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, he plays multiplayer online games with his friends on a pretty regular basis. And I think he's probably heading down a path where he might be going into um, computer programming or computer sciences, things like that. I just feel like that is more his passion. Um, you know, he's taken a computer programming course and he was like, this was, you know, it was both fun and was, he said it was very easy. So obviously he's pre-wired to be able to do that kind of work. So I don't know that he's kind of heading down that biological path. And then my daughter is very different than that. She's much more liberal arts. She's very, um, uh, she's very much into drama and singing and things like that. So it's just, 
you know, I think everybody's kids are, are very different individuals and they are supposed to support them in, in those endeavors. Generally so, oppose the parents too. you know, yes, I mean, my maybe. parents are very blue collar and I just went the complete opposite direction. So, well, well, I, I think that was interesting is originally when you first started, Kevin, with the company, you said that you were doing videos and that you were a designer and everything. So there's this place where, yeah, that is where your daughter is too, because that's all in that creative space. But you've also gone into now you do serious games, which is all about learning. And I think that that's an influence on your uh, your son also, because, yeah, it's games, but games can be used for entertainment. They can also be used to learn. So absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we are we as a company, we are a technology company. I mean, we have a we have a technology team um, that works with. Uh, you know, HTML5 and Unity or iOS development. So, you know, it is a technology company. And, you know, I think you can't operate in this space and build these kinds of programs unless you have at least some knowledge in that area as well. So. Yeah, I love his office. I really want that office. It looks like a beautiful green screen. Just for those uh, viewers of our show, if you're on YouTube or on Facebook, but um, definitely check out Kevin's office because it's worth the... Uh, you know, replication, like you should make that a green screen and say, Hey, free download, <laughs> whatever. All right. Maybe just for you. <laughs> okay. Thanks. I would like it. So we're back to you here. Next question. So I was just wondering what you were most proud of. Uh, I think it's a combination of my professional and my personal accomplishments in life. I think that, um, you know, when I, I set aspirations for myself when I was finishing school and what, where I wanted to be in life. And I look back at, you know, I'm blessed to have a happy and healthy family. I'm also blessed that I have a job that I can come to and feel excited about every, every day um, that I'm, we're doing work that's meaningful. I think I honestly believe that the work we do is, is helps to improve health and helps educate people and provide um, opportunities for people to learn about things that might otherwise be really challenging. So I think that um, it's that combination of the accomplishments that I've been able to contribute to both in my professional career and then also the fact that, uh, you know, I, I have a family that, uh, you know, I love and care for dearly and, uh, you know, they've been with me along for this journey. Mm, that's super sweet. So something that I think that I've learned from having interviewed a lot of guests is this is off topic. But every industry needs their own marketing people that can interpret that particular industry for others. We've had people from agriculture and their marketing specialists and that. So they end up doing their craft, just like you are. You're doing your craft of marketing and being able to be that storyteller. But you have chosen a specific industry to do that in. And, and it's something that I think that most... I'm, still in this place of like students when they're thinking about career paths they don't they don't think about that they aren't thinking about oh what industry do i want to be in what type of entity is it is a government nonprofit or also you know for profit and what do i actually want to do so going back to like you originally when you were in school and you were thinking what was your major it was in biochemistry in my undergrad and then yeah. bio, biomedical communications for my master's. Yeah. So, you know, it's all in that science space. So when did the art uh, side of you actually kick in? Was it like courses or did you learn that on the job? Because I'm just curious. Yeah. Well, like I'd mentioned earlier, my, my, I didn't have any art, formal art training. It was really after finding out about that program at University of Toronto. And it's, it's really only one of four programs across North America that specializes in that sort of art and science uh, yeah. degree. And once I'd found that, I kind of knew at that point in time that this was going to be the path that I wanted to go on because there was nothing else like it. And uh, I had struggled with, you know, do I want to work in a lab my entire life? Do I want to do, you know, pure sciences? And I knew that I enjoyed them, but there was also that part of you that says, you know, you really enjoy art and maybe it would be a side project, but this was that really beautiful coming together of both parts. And so once I found that, I knew that this was the industry I wanted to be a part of. Um, it, just, so, it, it just it spoke to me. Yeah. And so the thing is that this isn't specific just for people that are in school. I think that there's this place as just 
as we we grow and we learn and we get you know wiser about who we are and what we want to do we learn oh i would really like to go and do this because people will stay in a maybe a role for about seven years and they go five maybe it's five years five to seven years and go i want to try this so what i find so interesting is that you've been with this company for so many years You've been able to grow within the company. You've grown the company into a next level. And you've, you're, whatever it is, you've found this place of continuous learning and just to go, okay, but we could continue to push this. And I think that's really unusual because, you know, you, you've grown. You've enjoyed everything that you're doing. You've given, you know, credit to all of your family there. And, and it's just a really nice story because I think many people in life are just bouncing from place to place to place, trying to figure out who they are and what they want to be. And yet you've known this and you've been able to really make your life be what you wanted it to be. Yeah, but there's also a piece of that that's around continual evolution. And I think, you know, people ask me sometimes, why have you stayed at the same company for such a long period of time? And the answer I often give is that the company and my role um, five years ago were entirely different than mm-hmm. they are now. And I think it's that idea of constantly reinventing yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, we would have stayed a pure play medical animation company and did illustrations. And that's what we were doing 20 years later. I, I would not have been here, but the fact is, is that we always were looking at what's coming next and what are some of those new technological advances that are going to be things that we can work on and, and keep me on my toes. Um, and it allowed me to move between different jobs. I've been in charge of the animation department. I've been in charge of production. I've managed um, all sorts of different departments. And now I'm in charge of like uh, the creative innovation team, which really focuses on pitch work and coming up with new ideas and external thought leadership. And this keeps me on my toes. It keeps me things exciting because you are continually um, reinventing. And I also want to credit my team as well. Um, the people that I have an opportunity to work with, it's not just my family. Um, uh, I'm blessed to be surrounded by incredibly talented people mm-hmm. and they keep me on my toes every day. Mm-hmm. And they also demand the best of the, the, they demand the best out of me and I demand the best out of them. And I think that that relationship means that you're always putting your best foot forward and, and coming up with ideas and products that would otherwise not maybe see the light of day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You take the last question, and then we'll take our break. Awesome. Okay, kind of a fun one, but do you think life exists on other planets? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think at this point in time, we would be um, pretty naive to think that we are, you know, with the number of planets that are out there, we are still finding new life on Earth. Uh, you know, they, they're still finding new species that exist on Earth. So to think that uh, we're, we're all that there is in the universe would be very short-sighted. I think it's just a matter of time before us, at some point we realize that, uh, you know, we are merely a speck in this massive universe and that there's a lot more out there that we do not know. So do you think it's going to be like Men in Black and it's really, what what is his name, the basketball player, Rod, Rodney, what's his name? I don't know. Yeah, in Men in Black they said, oh, you know, he always had the the colored uh, hair. Anyway. Oh, Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman, Dennis Rodman yeah. Dennis Rodman is okay. for sure an alien. Yeah, Dennis Rodman. They say, oh, Rodman, he's definitely from this planet. I sit there and I think, I bet they're really living right here among us and we just don't even recognize it. Do you think we've been we've been contacted or do you think they've attempted to make contact with or us Or they're already yet? here. Or like, is Roswell a real thing? How do you feel about all that? <sighs> I imagine there's probably some truth to all of these things. I think, you know, I, I think it's sometimes fun to let our, your imagination do the running. Yeah, uh, sure, yeah. I think that that's what makes, you know, science, science fiction movies so entertaining is the fact that there's always a little bit of truth buried into all these things. Mm-hmm. And it gives you as an individual the ability to kind of let your imagination stretch as far as it will go. Uh, so. I agree. I agree. So we're going to take just a few minutes to acknowledge our sponsor and we'll be right back. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. And we're back. Uh, This part of our show is about the future of jobs and industries in 2030. Okay, so what do you predict the future of your industry, since you're obviously in healthcare? And we've got COVID, so... Let's just say it's going to be continuing. You're, you've got a good industry to be in. Um, what do you think the industry and the jobs will be like in 2030? 
personally, I think that there's going to be even more automations and probably robots that will do some care in the hospital since we've been struggling with workers in a hospital i can definitely see oh well this is probably going to ramp up um but automations robots i see that happening what do you think yeah i guess i mean my my perspective is going to be more around communication how do we interact and how do we um to get the information to the people that they need. And I think that has got a very bright future. We talked about this offline before, but um, what happens when something like COVID hits is things that people talked about that were theoretical um, all of a sudden get accelerated and get thrown to the forefront. And you know, a year and a half ago, people were talking about, well, in the future, you'll be able to log on to virtual doctor visits and mm -hmm. be able to check in with them and do that. Now people are doing that all the time because that's what COVID has demanded of us. So these scenarios that sometimes throw the world into chaos allow us to have these technological advances that really allow us to communicate in ways that we never had thought of before. And so within healthcare, I think communication is going to undergo some pretty rapid changes over the next number of years. And they're, they're accelerated by what's happened in COVID. But I think that's laid the groundwork for some of the things that are going to come as well. Um, you know, I think gone are the days where um, people would sit in front of their screen to watch things for training and development that were passive videos that you just click through. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's the reason why things like serious games exist is that opportunity where people can now have an opportunity to be interacted with and engaged with in ways that they never were before. So that learning is really fun. It's really sticky. Um, we have technologies that are happening right now that you know allow communication to happen in ways that would have never been able to be possible before. You can have telepresence with things like, um, you know, we talked about the doctor's visits, but what about a scenario where uh, there might be a remote community where they can't even get a doctor to come in and you can have remote, uh, in remote instructed surgery from a doctor who's halfway around the world. You know, these are realities that are on the cusp that are starting to happen. And I think we're gonna to start to see that ability for people to interact with each other in ways that they never could do before because technology and um, because of the situation we find ourselves in are allowing these things to now progress in ways that we, we you know, only dreamed of previously. So I don't know if this has ever happened. It just popped into my head. Do and maybe this was already happening in war settings, Afghanistan, we'll use that as the example, or wherever, you know, there was a need for emergency surgery, were people actually saying, okay, let me walk you through how to do this particular procedure so that this guy doesn't, you know, bleed out, like how to suture something. Do you know, I, I know I'm putting you on the spot on this, but does that kind of does the military do that? I would think that they probably do, where they're doing it like online and saying, okay, you need to pull the green suture through here and do this. I am sure that there are forms of virtual of training that happen in that capacity. I think more of the scenarios that I know of are where you might have a world expert who knows how to do something um, that a local doctor has only ever maybe seen one or two cases and they don't necessarily have that same, you know, level of expertise. They don't know exactly how to manage it. So it could be going to a part of the world where, you know, people are, the children are born with cleft palates more yeah. so and they don't necessarily know how to correct them. And so maybe you've got an, a world expert that's living somewhere else and they can ultimately either perform that surgery remotely or they can even do remote training for doctors that are local to that area. Um, we've developed, a, uh, for one of our pharmaceutical clients, um, there's a, uh, a program regarding uh, a, uh, a disease called SMA, which is spinal muscular atrophy. And we're working with the client to help develop materials so that in countries where they don't have a lot of expertise, we can ultimately uh, help to provide local training and local information that will make the physicians in those areas have access to that information and have access to be able to make better decisions for those patients that show up because they wouldn't otherwise be able to access it. Mm. That's really good stuff there. Um, well, okay, just a minute. Let me get back over. I was on the wrong side of the, uh, the questions here. Okay. Let's see. Biggest trends in the industry. What have you seen? And maybe we should take a step back and go, we've been talking about it in the first half of the show, but the advancements of where things first started, which you had said 1998 is when your company was originally there, but and 10 years for VR. So where were they? And then where do you think we're going to be going? 
from that yeah, well, whole history. We can start with AR and VR, and I guess we can just call it experiential um, reality or um, yeah. XR. So, I mean, that's a case where when we first started in this space, a lot of the headsets, a lot of the things you had to wear were big and clunky. They required really a lot of processing power. And what we've seen is that as more of these big players are making investments in it, um, you know, obviously Oculus was bought by Facebook and we've got other players that are entering. What we're seeing is we're seeing the headsets are becoming lighter, they're becoming untethered, and we're starting to see technologies merging together. There are now virtual reality headsets that allow pass-through, just like augmented reality, so parts from your real world can actually come in. We're seeing augmented reality headsets where they can do mapping of a room so well that you can actually overlay on top of a real world environment, almost making it look like virtual reality. And I think that the future for this is really around that idea that um, moving forward, these headsets and these wearables are going to be so lightweight and so, um, uh, so much a part of our daily life that they'll be imperceptible, whether it's like a contact lens or whether it's mm -hmm. a pair of glasses that look just like the ones I'm wearing right now. And we can do that because the computational power that we normally have this big machine powering can be offloaded to the cloud. It can, all of the work can be done there and then it can be fed back down. So you've got these really lightweight, really small headsets or viewports that you're going to be looking through. And we're going to be having people, just like you put your watch on in the morning, you're going to be putting on something or having something implanted and it'll be a part of your daily life. It'll mm -hmm. almost be like wearing your seatbelt. You'll just know to do it every day. And it will provide us with that extra level of information that gives us an opportunity to have these experiences that are not a part of the real world, but they make our lives better. And it ultimately helps to service us. I've been at events at conferences where they had um, Google Cardboard and you would yeah. put your phone into this cardboard device and it was still doing the same thing as an Oculus, you know, where you could see augmented or virtual reality through your phone. That's very accessible, but I agree. I think it's going to be more of like context or they're going to go and embed it right into your eyes. So yep. that's how you see stuff and you begin to experience it. But Matt wants to say something. I was just wondering, so you're proposing that at some point in the future, we're going to have something like a HUD, like in a video game where you would have like like weather and time and, and everything, or maybe even the internet or like a dock or something pulled up just in our view for the day. I, I think it's already, we're already heading down that path. I think it's only a I think it's there. It's happened. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, I, what will happen is in the same way that we jump to our phones to look up things on Google or we need information really quick, we pull our phone out of our pocket, there will probably be a point in the near future where we don't even have to reach into our pockets for a phone. Our phone will just be activated by a keyword that we say, and it will be displayed whatever that information is right in front of us. It'll be so ingrained in what we do. You won't need anything peripheral to be able to do it. And I think that's probably where the where we're going to go. And when people have information at their fingertips that quickly, just think about how that will speed up things like diagnosis or um, information that patients might need. So from a healthcare perspective, it could be really transformational around being able to get information to people so quickly. And I remember a few years ago, Google Glass, Google Glass was trying yeah, to do yeah. things like that. There's, and it just kind of still around. dissolved. Really? They're still doing work still with around. that? Still around, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. What I think will end up happening is everybody's been testing it with our phones going, okay, let's do Apple Health. Let's do all of these things. And they're in reality, I know that everything that we do is tracked by the phones. There's, If you pay attention when you're driving, count how many cameras you see outside, whether it's in your building, in your building, outside of the buildings, and at every intersection where you are. Everything is always being watched, and we are being watched and listened to through our phone. At some point in time, just like animals are chipped, we're going to get chipped. And then that I believe that's how all of that stuff will begin to happen, and the I think science fiction movies are very good predictors as to what can happen or what may very well happen. So the Matrix, plugging it back into the back of our head. Yep. Do I believe that? Yes, I do. So I feel like we're going to be uh, embedded at some point in time with things. Yeah. And, and we're already, I mean, the Apple Watch can track some of the biometric data that's, uh, that uh, you're giving off. Like if you want to know your heart rate or your pulse, things like that. Mm -hmm. I think we're already starting to see that. So to expect that, you know, maybe as a, a diabetic in the near future, you've got something that very quickly can measure your blood glucose levels and give you an idea of whether you're heading towards a hypoglycemic event would be not unrealistic expectation or having scenarios where, you know, something that would be a predictor for an upcoming heart attack. 
and the, your, your whatever it is, whether it's embedded or whether it's something that you're wearing, tells you that these things are happening, which tells, which, you know, it can predict might be the early signs of, of something like a heart attack happening. It warns you about them. So you can go and get help sooner than later. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, it is and it isn't. So there's this place in in humanity that we need to always remember, yes, there's a place for all of these great advancements, but it's also about humans connecting with humans. And that goes Mm -hmm. back to what you said at the very beginning, Kevin, empathy. And remembering that there are things that machines can't do, and they, you know, maybe a machine, yes, I'm sure it can be programmed to detect... um, signals as to oh she's not feeling well oh this and this and this and it can sound like empathy but at the end of the day it's still really not so i i believe that we need to be very proactive in our approach of remembering this is still we're built and made for relationships and so we need to have that human interaction first and then look at how the future of anything, future of work, internet of things, everything that we're talking about, how does that complement what we're wanting to do in life and be used for good instead of like, it can go left, so left field. So And, and don't get me wrong. I think at the end of everything we do, um, the tools should be a way of informing you so that a human yeah. can make that final decision. I, I still feel, I mean, all the things we do right now, they're not to tell a doctor how to do their job. They're to provide information so that a doctor can make a more informed decision. And I think that's got to be at the core of everything moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, if we remove the human element, end up with Skynet, you know, and, yeah. and uh, we've seen how that ends. Yeah. Because, you know, if we have autonomous cars, they can drive, they can do all of that. At the end of the day, you better know how to drive a car because, you know, a chip can go bad. Somebody can mess with whatever the programming is. Things happen. And you still need to know how to parallel park or be able to navigate traffic. You still need to understand how to use a map. I maintain that the grid will go down at some point in time. And the ability to do something without a computer and without a phone is going to be very, very valuable. Like, yeah. you know, change a tire. Or read a map, know what a map is, read a map, you know, those things. Yeah. Anyway, uh, robots. I, I just like to throw ro- robots out there. We have a game on Steam, and we have robots in it. I don't know. What do you like about robots? What do I like about robots? Or don't like, whatever, you know. I don't know. It's I mean, not I'm, what you I'm do, big... but, you know. It, it, no, it's not what I do. I mean, we don't operate in that space, but I got to say, like, I'm, I'm a big science fiction geek. I, I love, uh, I mean... I love the possibility of, um, you know, having robots as a part of our lives and um, the ability to have them as like, um, you know, companions that can fulfill tasks that would otherwise be mundane that people don't want to do and and bring them into, uh, you know, the world. I mean, the, a lot of the science fiction movies obviously touch on that and then they go into how everything goes wrong. So there's always that element of fear around right. you know, creating a world in which these robots ultimately uh, decide they no longer want to serve their human masters. Mm. Um, but uh, no, it's, uh, it's something that uh, I, I look for when I go to look at science fiction movies as well. I love robot movies. And it's not a new concept, but one that I always found really interesting was um, like in iRobot, for instance, with that, like that decision making, that empathy that you touched on where it's like, you know, yeah. you, the the adult man has a higher probability of survival rate. So we're going to go and choose and save him over the kid, even though Will Smith wanted, you know what I mean, the kid to be saved over the robot. And that's where that hole comes from. And like, those are some of the issues that we're like looking at and kind of dealing with now with like self-driving cars and autonomous cars, where it's like, if a deer jumps in the street and it veers off the road and now you're going to a crowd of people, like, where is your car going to go from yeah. there? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's why I keep saying that, you know, at the end of the day, I think we have to rely on that element that's very hard to replace, which is um, that empathy and that understanding that a human making decision brings to that decision. Right and wrong. Ele- elements that that sometimes a computer can never understand or can't do. Um, and so there's elements that are weighing into that, that, um, uh, that I think is really important, but that's why humans are ultimately the end decision makers. You know, when I was designing, I, I watched this, uh, show, it was on Netflix and it's called coded bias. And they were talking about how bias is actually 
inadvertently built into code. And it is determining factors like your credit, you know, who gets credit, who doesn't, um, job opportunities. It was just all the way across the board. And we think that we're doing something well with machine learning and creating that. And I went, okay, when I was looking at creating the algorithm that I use to match, you know, people to each other, I said, yeah, there's a lot more complexity to that than what people think. And I went to truly remove bias. You have to, you have to approach it in a very different perspective. Obviously, I'm not going to talk about it because we're on the air, <laughs> and that's that proprietary stuff. But there is this. Um, it was a really good documentary. I highly recommend it. I asked the ladies that were in it. I said, "Can I interview you? Can I have you on my podcast? I really want them, because That'd it be was awesome. interesting." Yeah, I, I haven't heard back from them, but I'm still going to ask. Anyway, I think that. Um, the whole thing that we do always need to remember is, yeah, you can program to a certain extent. Just like you're saying, Kevin, there's only going to be humans interact uh, and they intersect and they help make those things happen. And so it's always about realizing we have huge power. What was that Spider-Man? Um, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, there we go. With great power. Yes. That we have all of these great responsibilities. Yeah. Super good. So this is a big industry here. $366.5 million in revenue in 2020. That was last year in just the surgical simulation market. And so I had read, you know, it said that the growth for the next year would be, you know, 16.9%. And that's still a lot of money. And so when I'm doing the math and I'm thinking in my head in 2030, and so we'll just say it's like 10% growth, we're looking at, you know, in nine years, we should see a lot more growth. I sit here and I go, okay, it could be nine times, 10 times, you know, this 366.5 million is what it could be, but stuff happens in nine years. And so what we think virtual reality looks like now, just like we've been talking on the show, it can totally change into something different. So virtual reality, I'm a big, I like Star Trek and Star Wars. Star Trek, I sit here and go, ooh, beam me up, Scotty. You know, we'll go that way. I think that some of that will happen also in that space. And to me, that's not simulation, but is it? Can it be? Yes. I'm not sure. Thoughts? I think it sounds like I'm all over the place, but I really am not. So I hope you're following my train of thought. Yeah, but even for where we're at right now, I mean, virtual reality gives you the ability to do what the holodeck does on Star Trek, mm -hmm. right? You put on a headset and now you're in an environment that doesn't physically exist in the real world. It's entirely computer generated and you can do anything. And I mean, we're doing it to train um, for medical environments. So whether it's surgical simulation, where whether it's flying through a blood vessel, but you can do it for absolutely anything. And so I think that, that we already exist in that world. The question is, how do we make that something that exists in such a way that doesn't require these big clunky headsets and this hardware that sometimes is a cost barrier and sometimes a technology barrier for setup and things like that. You know, if we want things to be used by everybody, they have to be really simple to use. Yeah. They have to be cheap to set up and, or to integrate as part of your life. And if we can get past that barrier, uh, I think the future is wide open. Mm. Uh, I agree. Yeah, and they are getting more and more sleek. I have the the Oculus Rift Two. I think it's the two. Is that or the Quest? Uh, the called? Quest. Yeah. The one that has the built-in and the also the audio in that is like very impressive. They have like mm -hmm. crazy surround. Um, but yeah, they're getting like sleeker and sleeker, and I'm really excited for. When you say sleeker, you mean smaller, less clunky? Smaller, like more form-fitting to your face. Yeah, lightweight. Um, I know with glasses, like after about an hour, an hour and a half, like the bridge of my glasses gets pushed on my nose, so mm -hmm. it's like kind of irritating. But like it's it's going to be really exciting just to see. Why where don't the they just make it, it a helmet that you put on? That's you know. It's kind of like that. Yeah. It's kind of there now. They're they're just goggles with like a strap that goes over your. Head. I know. I've. So. I put them on. I've played with them many times down at, you know, where I work out of, you know, startup accelerators. We're always exposed to those things, but it just seems like, eh, just make it a hood. Yeah. Put yeah. it on. Like you were saying, though, I'd love for it to get to a, a point where it's just like glasses and you throw them on and you're mm -hmm. just like teleported. That'd be crazy. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're all, we're all waiting for that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask you uh, what, like, the best mentoring you advice uh, advice you wanted to share with us, um, our listeners. Our listeners, yeah, a lot of us yeah. are interns um, are looking for. So the advice I would give is that uh, over the course of your career, you're going to get exposure to a lot of different things, and I think what you'll find is that there are things that you're really good at, and there's things that you know other people are going to be good at as well, and it's surround yourself with people 
that are smarter than you in areas that mm -hmm. are not your area of expertise. And you will learn as much from them as they learn from you. So know what you're good at, know what you can bring to the conversation and what you can contribute, and then surround yourself with people that are experts at what they do. And collectively, it will be remarkable the kinds of things that you can achieve because ultimately everybody brings their craft to the table. They bring their expertise to the table. And, you know, I'm, I'm 22 years into my career now, and I still learn things from people in unpredictable ways that I hadn't anticipated. And part of that comes from listening. It comes from making sure that people have an opportunity to have a voice. And it comes from that sense of curiosity and looking at what's happening in the world around us. So I would say, you know, keep those values high on your list and make sure you surround yourself with those individuals that are going to challenge you. They're going to challenge your decisions. They're going to um, provide you with food for thought. Mm. That's awesome. Kind of a never be the smartest person in the room. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I totally get it. So, Kevin, how can our listeners contact you? Is there, a, if you want to share your website, remember sometimes you have to, you know, make sure you spell everything here. What social channels are you guys active on? Email or LinkedIn? How do how can people reach you? Yeah, we're on we're on pretty much all of those. So um, you know, for in vivo, it's pretty straightforward. It's www.invivo.com. You can check us out on LinkedIn. Uh, we're also on social media. So we're on all the different platforms and we have an Instagram, we have a Facebook, we have Twitter. So by all means, and I have my own personal Twitter as well. It's KW Miller with an AR. Uh, so you can follow or look at what we're up to. Um, we're constantly posting new materials. And a lot of the stuff we're posting is some of the R&D work that we're doing, some of the recent projects we've done. So uh, if you want to see the kind of work that we're producing, by all means, please check us out. All right. Well, that sounds really good. I just want to make sure that I'm taking a moment just to acknowledge our team. So thank you to our sponsor, Cat5 Studios. Thank you for our, to our production team, associate producer, Becca Coffey. She's an intern. Uh, video and audio editing, Ayana Saunders. And also our video intern, Nick Morales. Sound and music by Dave Francis, Matt Miller, who is in the show here with us, and Miguel Centra. Employers, visit Intern Pursuit at www.internpursuit.tech to learn how you can get a match to amazing talent and be recognized as an employer for change. 